On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Michael Beck about the Reformed Two Kingdom Project and Meredith Klein. So we cover topics like who is Meredith Klein and what does he have to do with this project? What is his view of covenant theology and how does that compare to others such as Rick Bonson, John Frame, from Dewey Ward, and others? What is the cultural mandate and how, how do we think Baptists should particularly approach this and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode in particular or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners and our friends to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that's devoted to thinking, but we want to be serious thinkers because we think the serious church needs it. But we don't want to just think, we want to think well. So we've endeavored to create and promote an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And I am super pumped to introduce you guys to Michael Beck. Now, I don't, I meant to ask this before we started recording, but I don't know, is it is it Dr. Michael Beck now officially? I don't know when that was officially granted. Um, you know, let's let's uh let's not count our chickens before they hatch. Um, okay, okay. I haven't defended yet, so it's looking good though. I'm feeling good. Okay. It's looking good. But let's just hold off on that for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so we'll say potentially Dr. Be- Dr. Michael Beck <laughs> we have on the show which I'm really excited about. I think um before I let him introduce himself uh, I found out about his stuff because of Brandon. So Brandon listens to his podcast, Two Age Sojourner. Uh, and so I started listening to it from that uh, perspective and ha- really enjoyed it. So I, Brandon mentioned earlier, I think, when we were just chatting, that he, he, he just has a good posture about it. So they talk about serious things, but they don't take themselves too seriously. So I kind of like those sort of podcasts myself. Um, I find serious topics with unserious hosts, not like, not like just completely, you know, I don't know, cutting up, but being cool about it. I like that. So I'm really excited to talk to you about the topic of your dissertation, which Meredith, Meredith Klein, Covenant Theology, and all that goes on with that. So very, very fun uh, discussion here, Baptist sort of stuff. So before we get into all that, uh, why don't you just give us a little background about yourself and what made you interested in devoting all this time and research to this topic? Yeah, and thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, Love your podcast as well. Love what you guys are, are doing. Um, and it's great to know you're listening as well. That's just cool, meeting some some other people involved. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I'm from, maybe one thing I should say, is I, I'm currently in New Zealand. I'm from South Africa. So if my accent messes with anyone's head, then that's why. Uh, it's not actually a, a New Zealand accent at all. It's a South African gun rogue accent because I've traveled and done a whole lot of things in between. But I'm from Port Elizabeth um, originally. Um, that's where I, uh, I grew up. Um, and, uh, that's where I became a Christian. That's where I met my wife. Um, that's where I was married, of course. That's where, um, yeah, just that's where I started attending church and sensing a call to ministry and all of that. So I started training, um, uh, theologically. I mean, all my education has been in South Africa. That's, uh, my theological side as well. And, um, and then we came over as part of a, a church plant um, that was in 2005. So we were we were funded and sent from a from a church in South Africa, 
And we planted Grace Net Church, which is where I currently pastor. And we joined the Reformed Baptist Fellowship here. And so I was called there uh, about 2007, I think it was, um, as the kind of in the full-time preaching role. And I've been there ever since. And we've had all, all our um, kids in New Zealand and we're, you know, New Zealand citizens now. So, um, you know, I think we're here to stay, basically. And uh, when the church was was a little bit more established, um, I was able to carry on with the studies, you know, I just pick it up a little bit. And um, now I'm in, as we mentioned earlier, in the final stages of the of the PhD process, um, final, final stages, hopefully. And um, and yeah, the, the dissertation is about Klein. So so assuming all goes well, you know, it's really worked out because next year I get to uh, take on a role at Grace Theological College. So I'm hoping to do the pastoral ministry thing and uh, teach it at our one and only Reformed Training College in New Zealand. So that kind of worked really well um, on biblical theology. So I'm super excited about that. It'll be a full schedule. But but yeah, that's a bit of a sketch of what I'm up to. Other than that, you know, just the podcast, as you mentioned. And yeah, that's me. Nice. Well, let's let's go ahead and jump right in so we can spend as much time as possible uh, discussing the dissertation. So maybe I think, as Jordan already mentioned, the, the dissertation, and I'll let you uh, read off the title of the dissertation because that's a total mouthful. So if you want to read that, you <laughs> yeah. can. But it's all about uh, Meredith Klein and covenant theology and yeah. uh, Reformed Two Kingdom stuff. So maybe start off just um, telling us what the Reformed Two Kingdom project is, and then also maybe as part of that answer, if there's any other uh, foundational categories that you think people need to have in place to understand this conversation, this will be a good place to throw out those definitions as well. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, okay, let's start with the, um, the the actual topic title. It's a party trick, definitely. Um, the, a dialectic inquiry concerning Meredith Klein's covenant theology as architectonic substructure of the Reformed Two Kingdom Project. The goal there was simply to get as many complicated words in one sentence as humanly possible. Uh, but no, it was, it's just, uh, it's, it's really just about Klein's covenant theology as it interacts with, you know, I think, uh, quite a, a popular topic. You know, people know about the two kingdom idea and it's quite a controversial thing. Uh, but it was really to investigate some of the underpinnings of that idea. Um, and, uh, often that gets left out of, of the debate and the discussion. So um, I think, yeah, let's let's start talking about the Reform Two Kingdom project itself in terms of definitions there. Uh, it is quite important to get that right. Um, there, is, there is a broader, I've called it in my study, a two kingdom paradigm. And um, that's, that's a much, you know, that, some people have called it a traditional two kingdom doctrine or something like that. Um, and people talk about the reform two kingdom project as though it's kind of the one and only uh two kingdom doctrine out there and i think it kind of messes with the conversation a little bit so so i think what you know just for the sake of not calling it you know or calling it something different different let's start with this paradigm this broad paradigm that you can see right through it's not only a reform thing it starts right in the very beginning of christian thought it's really a broad trajectory of thought that uh, keeps in, it really struggles with antithesis and commonality and just how the church is in the world, essentially. How do we live uh, in the world? And it's this broad cognitive framework um, for developing uh, that idea and, and working that through. So you see it in the Didache, for example. You see it in, uh, you know, that famous epistle to Diognetus. You see uh, 
Augustine's City of God wrestle with this idea. You see Luther, of course, and this is where it starts getting called the Two Kingdom Doctrine and becoming a little closer to home. Uh, but then as, uh, as Van Druden argues, you see this run all the way through Calvin and the post-Reformation scholastic. So it's, it's really there all the way until, you know, in Reformed thought, until like the neo-Calvinistic Dovidian sort of trajectory that comes from it. And, um, and it's only really at that point that you get to the Reform Two Kingdom project as I'm talking about it, which is kind of an in-house reform thing. It's not Lutheran. It's not, you know, that broadly Augustinian thing. It's just, it's this in-house reform thing that tries to kick back a little bit on the neo-Calvinistic ideas that have become the, the, the predominant um, uh, paradigm for how we should approach questions of cultural engagement and so forth. And, um, and so they've tried to kick back on it and just say, hey, you know, let's, let's just all remember that there has been this historical broader paradigm, um, which I think sometimes they rightly point out is uh, forgotten amongst reform. You know, there has been this thing that we should, we should think about, and uh, it's, it hasn't always been uh, only neo-Calvinism. And, um, and I think a lot of these uh, thinkers that are saying that are from Westminster Seminary, California, hence the, hence the derogatory title, um, Escondido Theology. It's, it's, not, it's not exactly fair to say that, but a lot, it is true that a lot of these guys like Horton and Van Drunen and these big thinkers are from uh, Westcondido. Uh, Westcondido. There we go. I did it. West, Westminster Escondido. Um, and uh, they basically argue that, hey, okay, you know, everyone agrees Christ rules overall and um, and. You know, no problem there. Everyone's on the same page. But he does so through the means of these two kingdoms that are regulated by two covenants. And even as I say that, you kind of, you're getting right in, into that in-house side of the debate there because, you know, as Luther processed the two kingdoms, he didn't do it on the basis of two different covenants. Um, as Augustine processed, you know, that two kingdom rubric, you know, broadly speaking, uh, he didn't do it on the basis of these covenants. So this is really a, a kind of, a, a, a progression in covenant theology within the reformed sphere uh, or, or the development of reformed thinking. And, um, and they're arguing that there's this common grace covenant that regulates the common kingdom. And then obviously the redemptive covenant, uh, covenant of grace is regulating the redemptive kingdom. And, um, and they want to show the clear continuity that that has with the greater reformed two kingdom paradigm, but really they're developing it in, in very specific ways at that point. And, you know, not only within, you know, it might even be fair, and this kind of anticipates where I'd go with my with my dissertation, but at the bottom of it all is um, not only just Reformed Covenant theology, but really a Kleinian spin on Reformed Covenant theology. And so that's where Klein does come into this this whole thing. So, you know, really the, the dissertation is just a, a, the idea with a dialectic inquiry there is, is just to, uh, talk about the method of research of just a way to gain the data is just to basically put client up against some some conversation partners and and and, and move back and forth between them and then to use their critique of client as a, a evaluative means uh, to understand whether his covenant theology does in fact provide uh, the the substructure that they claim that it does um, architectonic is just a you know often you'll see the word used for covenant theology as it relates to reformed theology. So, you know, there's this architectonic principle in reformed theology, which is kind of, you know, just driving all of it at, at the bottom, uh, almost like a, you know, a architectural metaphor. You see this foundational 
or framework structure that's holding it all together. It's, it's usually at the bottom. It's not always uh, seen, but, but there it is. So that's kind of the idea there with the dissertation title. And um, that's a little bit about um, the two kingdom doctrine, which I think is the most important thing. Covenant theology, I think your, your listeners have that down. So I won't, I won't labor, labor with any definitions there. But uh, hopefully that helps. I'm trying to think Meredith Klein's covenant theology and his two kingdoms pro- uh, project. What are, I mean, you've talked about Escondido a little bit, and I guess John Frame is somewhat associated with that, or at what was at some point. I think he's in Orlando or somewhere now. I don't know where he is. Yeah. Maybe he's not. Yeah. But yeah. John Frame, I think Greg Bonson, I think, I mean, you, you mentioned Van Drunen, some of these other guys. What's the similarities and differences between Klein and, and the, their projects? Yeah. Um, yeah. Frame is, um, I actually met with Frame um, in, uh, he, yeah, he left um, West, uh, West Candido. I did it again. Let's just call it West Candido from now on, shall we? And make it a little bit easier. Because I think <laughs> we'll it's. We'll go just, with it. Because, you know, you have to go Westminster, Philadelphia, Westminster, Escondido. It's just like we should call it West Candido to save everyone a little bit of time and then call the other thing something else, you know, entirely. Uh, but, you know, uh, so there's this uh, book that Frame actually wrote lately. Um, uh, what is it called again? Theology of My Life. It's, uh, I think it was the the most recent thing he's published. But yeah, he details all about how he left Westminster and, and kind of went there. And if anyone is interested, it's really... Uh, I really appreciated the way he was kind of an open book about his life and and uh, just just I found it very encouraging reading through that. But anyways, uh Meredith Klein, yeah, I mean he was um you know as you know an Old Testament scholar and um brilliant. I mean everyone all of these guys they all admit that you know even if they don't like what he said that he was really he was something uh amazing. Um wasn't a Baptist guy, uh, so just in case your your Baptist listeners are, are thinking that this is a, a Baptist guy that we're talking about, he wasn't. He was a a, a committed Presbyterian, part of the OPC. So, uh, yeah, he hung in those circles, um, the Westminster crowd, and um, and the way he he kind of uh, interacts with these other guys is, is really interesting. Um, I think that you know you mentioned when you asked the question, like, what is Klein and his Westminster project? you know, his two kingdom project have to do with all of this. I think, you know, one of the things you got to, you got to be clear on is that Klein himself really didn't, didn't speak to the two kingdom thing at all, which is, you know, kind of an interesting dynamic. Uh, he, he almost like has nothing to do with the reform two kingdom project now in terms of anything he said directly. But what happened was he, he started lecturing and, you know, obviously doing his thing at the various seminaries that he was part of. And he gave rise to these group of thinkers that that, that carried it forward, but it was really in his um, in his uh, development of covenant theology that that eventually went head to head with like theonomy and and um, and some of the the Norman Shepherd com- controversy and um, you know who else so a little bit with frame and and, mul- and multi perspectivalism and that sort of thing. And um, and so he would interact with these guys, and that would actually provide the fodder for for later reformed two kingdom theologians like Horton and Fesco and Van Drunen to come along and develop those angles in in ways that are related to the current debate, which is more against neo Calvinists rather than theonomists per se, and um, and again are, are developed in all sorts of different areas, pastorally, historically, so forth. Not so much the Old Testament theology per se. Um, so, you know, that's kind of wh- how he relates to the Two Kingdom Project. And that also brings in, you know, why it is that, that, um, th- that 
these uh, conversation partners like Barnes and Frame and Doyovit are, are relevant. Um, they, uh, they, they, they are really they're all transformationalist thinkers. I think we could say that much. Um, they're they're not they're not all approaching the thing in the same way. So Barnes and Frame and Doyovit are they are different. Uh, they're all very profound thinkers. They're they're voluminous uh, in their writing. So you know it's really almost impossible to try and get exactly where the differences are between all of them. But in terms of just focusing on Klein, uh, I think you can bring out a few lucid points. Um, I think you can, for example, uh, just to take a click in on what we were saying earlier there, as he's as he's developing his doctrine uh, and he's going in a slightly different direction to John Murray, let's say, and that eventually gives rise to kind of, you know, some of the shepherd slash theonomy bonds and stuff. Um, Klein, Klein, Klein put together these very lucid points that uh, that you can, even as I say them, you can kind of see how they could be taken in a two-kingdom direction. I think, let me just say up front also, just to get this off of my chest, uh, that I feel there is a way to kind of hold to Klein's theology um, and, and yet not end up... Uh, a rabid two kingdom guy, right? So let me just let me just put that on the table. I'm not. It, it takes a lot of explanation to to show how that could be true, but uh, you know, let me just say that if, for anyone that's listening, and then just kind of go ahead and assume that. All right, well, you can see how the stream leads to to two kingdom thought. Um, but Klein, for example, argues between this. He's got the strong two Adam framework thing going, where you know the works uh, of the first Adam are. are are completed or, or at least uh, substituted um, by Christ, this, the last Adam. Uh, there's this job that Adam had to do that he failed to do, and Christ has come to do it. You know, there, there's this uh, Romans 5 thing going on there, uh, inclined big time. And um, I think what, to the degree that you buy into that, um, as as you see Klein describe the cultural task as part of that first Adam role, you can see how immediately that's going to create some kickback to, to neo-Calvinist thinking, where they would argue that, hey, we're just kind of picking it up from where Adam left off. You know, Christ has enabled us to come back to what Adam was doing and just keep developing what Adam was supposed to be developing. Immediately, you can see how that's going to create some tension, because if they're saying... Uh, you know, typically when we think about this two two Adam uh, framework, we're thinking about justification and you know Christ doing the works that that we failed to do in Adam and so forth. So if the cultural task is part of that, then um, you know you can see how any grasping at doing a work that Christ has now completed, it, it, it the rhetoric gets strong at that point. It gets kind of a right at the heart of of some interesting. Um, uh, tensions and feelings about it because it, it almost feels like a justification issue at that point. Uh, but then, secondly, Klein, you know, he's got this famous drive for um, separating the holy and the common, and his uh, development of the doctrine of common grace, and um, showing that there is this uh, legitimate uh, sphere uh, that God Himself has put into place, even though it's not redemptive, it's legitimate. It's not. It's not holy, but it is legitimate. And there's this whole. Uh, detailed way that he he puts this together, and I think this is where you see a very very lucid connection to someone like let's say Van Drunen, um, uh, who develops that that Noahic covenant um, exegesis in in Klein. In fact, um, recently I read, uh, where was it? I think it was in um, Van Drunen's latest book, Politics After Christendom. Uh, he one of the guys uh, one of the guys doing the forward there 
mentioned that his great innovation was just to take the, uh, that Van Runen's great innovation is just to take the Noé covenant and really apply it to the historic two kingdom paradigm, which I think is exactly right. But you could push that one step further and say, really, Van Drunen is just taking Klein's exegesis there and, 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 and applying it the way that he is. So it provides a very lucid connection to, to Klein and, and where that would take you. Um, the other big thing that Klein is, is known for, uh, in comparison to these other guys, is this doctrine of republication, uh, typological republication of the of the mosaic. Well, he sees the mosaic covenant as a typological republication of the covenant of works, and um, and it's it goes hand in hand with his theology of eschatological intrusion, where you, where the principles of common grace are suspended during that time, and you know everything is holy, and and uh, where judgment happens, it's like foreshadowing the final judgment and it's it's nothing how that hits the road for the two kingdom thing is that uh it it just completely takes israel out of the picture in terms of a a norm or an ideal that the church needs to shoot for um and i realize that neo-calvinists are not are not saying that you know they're not making arguments like theonomists are necessarily but often neo-calvinists will kind of you know, even if it's a very subconscious feel about it, they would hold up Israel as a kind of, this is what we need to be doing, church. This is, this, they really nailed it. You know, they really got it right. They really, um, uh, this is what it looks like to really be engaged with culture and winning that culture war. Uh, so even if they're not arguing for a, a kind of the, theonomy angle, they are, they are certainly, um, they are impeded by Klein's argument because he just completely removes that idea and says you, you can't hold it up as a norm. It was eschatologically, you know, it, may, it had a punch. It made a point. Uh, it was republishing a, a covenant that that really shows us the need for the gospel. So to try and um, to try and do what Israel was doing is just a bad move all around. Um, and then you know, I think that you you see that just on those points alone, just. You know, none of the other uh, thinkers that we mentioned there, David, Frame, uh, are moving in that direction. Uh, maybe just a few other points to to bring it out as well. Um, as you look at Klein, uh, one of the things I've, I've, I think is clear, as you look at Klein in relation to David or Frame or um, Barnson, you see that Klein is by far the most um, interested in upholding a Vassian biblical theological methodology. He's just very, very concerned about that. Um other thinkers will obviously give some level of lip service to to Vass, and um, they'll, you know, basically adhere to some level of, of Vassian dynamic there. But, but with Klein, he's just he wants to do Vass two point He wants to move in that direction, and he's not, you know, it's something very distinctive about his thought. Um, I'm thinking you're of Vass's own um, statement on his method as well. You know, if you've got his. Um, biblical theology i think it was on page 16 or 17 i can't remember exactly now but he's got this great quote let me read it quickly he says the method uh, this is bus the method of, of biblical theology is in the main determined by the principle of historic progression uh hence the division of the course of revelation into certain periods and then he says from this it follows that the period should not be determined at random or according to subjective preference but in strict agreement with the lines of cleavage drawn by revelation itself so i mean that is that's Klein, 100%. He is just so concerned to uphold that particular angle. And uh, and you see, I think, theonomy, and they, you know, I don't want to be too harsh here, but but theonomy, perspectivalism, if they don't hold to some sort of formal monocovenantalism, they, they really hold to a functional one, all things said and done. 
Um, so that's one of the one of the lucid ways you see the comparison happen. Uh, another way is is concerning the works grace antithesis. I think this is an important point to bring out as well. Uh, it's not often brought up in relation to culture and two kingdoms, but it, it is related, as we mentioned earlier. Um, there is, you know, with with Klein, he that it's in many ways it's kind of his whole deal. He just he just wants to make sure that we understand works and grace are different and how they relate to one another. Um, gospel and law, you know. Um, whereas as Bonson, you know, he'll 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 say things that kind of give lip service to that, but even just in the continuity that the Mosaic covenant that, that has with the new covenant in his um, formulation, you could see how he ends up moving more along the lines of a law gospel continuum. In fact, he does later on, he really adopts a lot of Fuller's law gospel continuum, kind of rejects the antithesis idea. Frame just thinks uh, the law gospel thing is kind of a Lutheran deal. So he, um, he doesn't like that at all. Um, uh, Doevet rejects it as a kind of dualism. You know, so they don't. He doesn't like the law gospel antithesis. So they they've got law and gospel in there. They're trying to reconcile all of it, but not in in an antithetical way. Um, but Klein's Klein's so uh, vivid on this point, and he he. I think this does account for a lot of his rhetoric because you'll see him uh, speak against theonomy very harshly. For example, in that famous article he wrote, the comments on an old new era uh, era at least, um, and, and he 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 speaks so harshly because I think he understands that all these things are connected and, and, you know, sure you, you're, you're arguing at one level for, you know, politics and, and mosaic law and politics, but he knows that if you give ground on that, the next thing to go is the law of gospel distinction itself. And, you know, that that's really the heart of the gospel. So uh, he fights for that tooth and nail in, in the way that he interacts. Um, lots more things we could say. I mean, I think, you know, there is all sorts of interesting things about Klein in, in terms of the way he's he doesn't give as much of a place in his system as the other guys do to philosophical abstraction. I don't I don't want to say that he's anti-philosophical or anything like that, but he's just so concerned with the biblical data. You know, if you if 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 something gets in the way of the biblical data, he'll scrap the philosophical abstraction in a heartbeat. Whereas, you know, and there's this great little interaction he has with the neo doyavidians when uh, in in Kingdom Prologue. Um, it's in uh, from memory. I think page one sixty nine or one seventy. If anyone wants to check it out, but he's he's talking there with um, uh, you know Doyavit, and he's he's basically saying, or, or with uh, the the followers of Doyavit, and he's saying, listen, uh, you know, I'm all about. He actually really opens the door to Kaipa. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm you know part of this tradition. I like Doyavit. Everything's good. It's just that they've got this philosophical monism that's ruling the day for them, and they're forgetting to to deal with these really concrete points of biblical data and 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 they need to tweak some things to be able to account for that so that's kind of Klein in a nutshell there he 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 really does um he cares about the biblical text you know and and, and that Fassian biblical theological uh, methodology it's maybe one of the reasons i like him as a baptist as well because you know he is he's able to kind of talk about discontinuity where it happens you know he's not so interested in seeing total continuity you know, as a Baptist, I think we, as Baptists, I think we we kind of are sensitive to that point. We see it, and we're like, well, we're not willing to follow the, the Presbyterian all the way on that, uh, on that, or the the Reform guy all the way on that, because we're seeing something in the text that's going, you know, we need some some unfolding, we need some, uh, you know, newness in the new covenant, and um, 
and so Klein picks up on that, and I really appreciate the way that he he does that. He's he's able to to account for a unified system, and yet really look at those elements of discontinuity where they happen. And then maybe on that point, you know, the big the big thing in relation to the two kingdom uh, paradigm and transformationalist theology is is that he he sees. Um, uh, you know he's a he's not a continuationist and i don't mean that in the charismatic sense he he um he does not see the the cultural mandate applying in a completely continued way un, unaffected by the fall uh the 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 great commission is something different to the cultural mandate the cultural mandate is 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 altered and refracted through genesis 9 and so we've got these two parallel things going on uh that we need to think about as christians the one is is you know a common grace thing and the other one is a redemptive thing so as you can tell i can just keep going on this let me let me stop talking there and, and check in with you guys and see if uh we're all tracking yeah I'm, I'm tracking right along i was gonna yeah i was gonna ask you to maybe drill a little bit deeper on the on the cultural mandate stuff because that's so important um and and klein's um the role of the two atoms in his theology and the adamic covenant of works and then the pactum salutis for christ and yeah. then how we as the church understand the Great Commission in light of what Christ has accomplished and then how that relates to what we um, what we do with the cultural mandate and what we don't do with the cultural mandate. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, the cultural mandate, yeah, it is, uh, that's helpful just to, just to put that on the table. What is that exactly? Uh, and yeah, you know, again, it's not, it's not a controversial point. We're just going to Genesis 1 opening, you know, chapter of the Bible there it is in the text. Everyone sees it. Uh, verse 28, uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. You know, there it is. Um, you don't have to be a, a Kyperian to see that or, you know, whatever. Everyone, everyone is, is agreed on that point. Um, the and culture, I think you can get that. Everyone agrees that, you know, it, it's sure it was about children. It was about dominion. But Culture is implied in all of that, in that original task. Um, the debate concerns what happens after the fall. That's the big thing. And, um, and yeah, that's where you need that two Adam rubric to kick in. Um, what happens? What, is, what did the fall mean for all of that? And what is, what is um, you know, Genesis, um, what does Genesis 9 have to say about this after the flood? Because it seems to be a very clear, again, it's in the text. There it is. It's, it's like, a parallel to Genesis 1 on this dominion uh, mandate idea. Um, so what does that mean exactly? Why is that stated after the flood? And all of those things uh, are in place. That's where it gets a little tricky. That's where you got all these lines of intersecting thought. Um, I think the two Adam thing, um, even before we get to what, what Jesus did, you know, what, what, what Klein uh, contributes and what he's so helpful in doing and as far as I'm aware, I mean, well, he does this more than anyone else that I'm aware of. Um, he develops the protological eschatology side of things. Um, so what I mean by that is, is there is a, you know, as Vas said, there's a kind of eschatology that precedes even soteriology. There's a, there's a, even before you get to the fall, there's a goal for humanity in view. <clears throat> and that's, that's very much wrapped up in this covenant of works idea. Um, uh, and, and these are the kinds of questions you have to work through. Was was the you know as you read through that text that we just spoke about in, in Genesis one, you know the very next chapter is about the Sabbath, you know, and was the Sabbath connected to that task, you know, and is the is the Sabbath in chapter two the same thing as the sa Sabbath in Hebrews four, you know, is is that the same thing? Are we talking about an eschatological 
ultimate goal for humanity as a result of him doing the cultural task? You know, is that a workspace emulation of God? I'm, I'm working six days to enter into rest. Um, if it is, then, you know, the, the Klein really draws that out. He, he shows, well, okay, you know, if you're going to agree with that idea, then when Jesus comes and he has dominion, as he says in, in Matthew 28, and when he enters into eschatological rest, and, and, and Hebrews 4 tells him uh, tells us that he is the one that has already entered into that realm. I mean, we're, we have a two-Adam idea that's quite profound. And basically, the, the, the big message is what Adam failed to do, including this cultural task, um, has now been fully accomplished by Christ. He has had dominion in, 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 over, you know, he rules and reigns. Um, and he is already in that place that has been created, uh, a consummate reality that will, uh, or at least um, eschatological reality that will be consummated and will be um, uh, will be joined with the current order, so to speak, um, when the time comes. But, you know, that's where you have these two sides of the debate emerge and that the transformationalists will come along and, and say, no, wait, um, uh, as I said before, you know, where Adam failed, what Christ, Christ did certainly uh, come to uh, as the as the last Adam, but the difference is that that as the last Adam, he he kind of continues the mandate of the first Adam through the church, and we we really have an opportunity now to 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 join him in that, and so we pick it up where Adam left off, and it's it's kind of a different idea in that there's this one kingdom. The goal wasn't really this eschatological outworking, you know, before the fall. It was it's more like Adam's just in the garden. He is um, told to develop the creation norms, you know, the cosmonomic task, you know, to to develop these norms and to uh, and to just display uh, the the glory of God through the the maximum capacity of humanity, and um, and you know, I think if if there's no eschatology in view at that point, it almost becomes a really plausible idea that you could just pick it up and keep going, you know, because because if Adam was just to do that, then okay, well, we can kind of do that. Sure, sin is in the way, but that's where this one kingdom idea comes in into place. It was one kingdom. It was in jeopardy for a while. Christ made it possible for us to take that kingdom back, even though sin threatened to take it away. The only real thing ever in view was not a new creation, but just this creation. So we just really are back to the task now of, of just developing the creation norms. And so you can see how eschatology really matters with that. You know, if, if, if sin is, I mean, what Klein is saying is that even if sin was not in the picture um, and Adam did the job perfectly, there still would be this massive discontinuity with what happens when he enters into that Sabbath uh, promise, you know, there he's going to enter in and, and, um, and, you know, the, the, all his human efforts, even without sin, are just going to fall away like scaffolding. And there's what, uh, what Klein calls the epiphonic flash is going to happen. And, you know, it, it, you know, so if that eschatology is in play, even before sin, um, my goodness, how much more, you know, does that is that in play with sin? Now, now we're really reliant on on, on God doing everything. You know what I mean? Even it, and that He has done it in Christ. So, I, you know, that kind of I think it is a really important dynamic that Klein brings in there, uh, which I don't see many other people talking about. Um, so, it, it certainly it makes me cautious to want to just grab hold of the cultural task as if the fall didn't happen. Um, it, it makes me feel. It brings a big question mark to my mind. Like I, w- I wouldn't do that for works. I wouldn't try and earn my way into heaven in light of what I know 
uh, about what Jesus did for me, you know, in terms of that part of the covenant of works. You know, I know there was a moral expectation on Adam. Adam failed. I failed in Adam. Jesus has come to succeed. Uh, he has obeyed God perfectly. I would never grasp at that and try and earn my way, you know, and just pick up from where Adam left off. So if it's true that, that there's this cultural element involved, then it does, it does mean we need to be really careful <laughs> before just jumping in there and going, well, I'm just going to pick it up from where Adam left off. Uh, we, we might well be missing a major part of what the gospel is, is uh, saying there um, as it relates to culture. So, um, yeah, I mean, I can't remember the question, to be honest, <laughs> but I think that kind of uh, no, that was, so, that was sort of hits where yeah. we were going. Yeah. So, uh, Jordan, I have so many questions. So if you got no, something you to go say, ahead, go ahead, man. So I, I got a question about Kuiper. So, um, you know, most of the time when we hear Kuiper, he, he's just lumped right in with the transformationalist. Like he's like, you know, the father of transformationalism, yeah. you know. But then, you know, as I was reading some of the stuff in your dissertation, and I've, I've listened to some some back and forth conversations a couple of years ago between um, Robert Godfrey and Van Drunen, and there yeah. seems to be like a way that Two Kingdoms uh, proponents can can claim Kuiper in a in a real way. So um, I wanted to get you to try to speak on that, and also Kuiper has this um, church as institution versus church as organism, um, distinction yeah. that he makes. Yeah. And I, I think, I think Bob Inc. might've picked that up too. I'm not positive. You can correct me if that's wrong, but I, what, it seems like that you could hold to a, a two kingdoms perspective and then utilize that institution and organism distinction for cultural engagement, um, for Christians. I was just curious to get your thoughts on that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, um, well, maybe to start with where you ended off there, um, you know, you, you do see, I think, especially with Horton and those guys, well, Van Drunen as well, as you mentioned, uh, they're very appreciative of, of Kuiper. And um, recently, I can't remember exactly, I think it might have been Tuninger who uh, put it up. Actually, it wasn't that recent. It was it was a, a conference that was held amongst, uh, uh, it might have been uh, one of these reformed colleges, I can't remember, but there were all these kind of uh, different speakers there and, and it, it was on the cultural issue and Kuiper and it was quite interesting to hear him report on that because he was saying that, you know, they all came away feeling, well, they're actually kind of on the same team on, on so many of these things. And that is really important to emphasize. I think it's, a, it's an in-house debate, especially as you focus on Klein, because as I was saying earlier, you know, Klein saw himself as part of that Kuiperian tradition. You know, he, he didn't think of himself going on this tangent to start this uh, two kingdom thing. You know, he was just going, well, let's tweak Kuiperianism. You know, let's let's just bring uh, the, the the reformed theology that we all know and love, uh, even to the extent that it, it had moved um, in in. Um, Doyeviet and and some of his um, followers, you know, let, let's just tweak it. Let's just make it. Part, let's give uh, he, his magnum opus, the um, Kingdom Prologue, that I referenced earlier. the The subtitle is Covenantal Foundation, or uh, what is it? Covenantal Foundations for a Worldview. Oh my goodness, I'm getting that wrong. But um, uh, something like that. He used the word worldview. Let me put it that way. And uh, I think it is covenantal foundations for a Christian worldview, uh, or something along those lines. Uh, I really should know that. So scratch that out, edit it before I have to write do my defense. Um, but <laughs> um, so you know. But what, what I was hoping to illustrate there is that you you have um, you know there it is. I mean that's exactly what Kuiper was doing, right? That's all he wanted to achieve. Really, he wanted to create this Christian worldview. He wanted to um, he wanted to 
bring in a uh, covenantal reformed foundation for that worldview. And so, so Klein um, certainly was was on board with all of that. Uh, maybe even against some uh, some two kingdom thinkers today, like maybe uh, you know I don't want to uh, let's say Fesco, who who's kind of moving away from the worldview thing. The last book that that I read, uh, Reformed Apologetics, I think he he was kind of challenging that idea. And you know, I don't think I don't see that in Klein at all. I think Klein would be happy with with the worldview concept and all of that. So that puts them already in a category. Uh, I think what what Van Drunen points out as well is that uh, you know Kuiper and I see this. I think Van Drunen's right. Um, anyone who likes the two kingdom idea will love Kuiper, you know, and anyone who likes Klein will love Kuiper because they're doing the same thing. They're just you know Kuiper is. He he develops common grace in really amazingly similar ways to Klein. Um, uh, you could say it the other way around. Klein is really just developing Kuiper's doctrine of common grace in many ways. Um, uh, I think a telltale sign is that a lot of current uh, Doyavidians or Neo-Calvinists really don't like Kuiper <laughs> because of that reason. You know, they kind of see that he wasn't Doyavidian enough. He, he, he allowed too much duality in his system and so it's kind of one of the reasons i think we can really embrace kuiper um and uh, i think a lot of a lot of uh, neo-calvinists don't want to embrace kuiper um and kuiper is a very reasonable balanced thinker in my opinion now it's, it's true that we we definitely have differences like i don't want to undermine those that uh, he he did not approach the, the the situation in exactly the same way of andrew would or i think even when it came down to it Klein would 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 argue for a much stronger difference, but a stronger cultic boundary, to use uh, uh, Klein's own words there. But but yeah, I mean, look for you know, assuming that you don't necessarily want to be a follower of Klein, you know, at every detail, um, but you want to develop a nice, nuanced, robust, balanced two kingdom doctrine. Uh, yeah, Kuiper needs to be in that arsenal as well, for sure, without a doubt. Um, but, Primarily, I think because of this common grace idea, you know that that's to the degree that you have common grace as a legitimate non-redemptive thing, uh, you know you've really got the two kingdoms right there. That's what it is, um, and and so yeah, I think um, you know more we could say on that point, but but maybe I should I should leave it at that without having any other you know text in front of me. Uh, does that make sense though? It does. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Thanks. What else you got, Brandon? I know you came with a ton of questions, so fire away, man. So I, I, so I have a question about theonomy. Uh, so you, you mentioned, and I, I can't remember if this was a point you were making. I should have looked this up before we started, or if this was a point that Klein was making. But in the critique of theonomy, it was almost like the critique was that um, if they're actually going to you know, go all in on, on um, the Mosaic Law and that judicial code being the standard— um, it, it almost seems irreconcilable with the Great Commission because you would have to be of two different minds because on the one hand, you are supposed to be converting um, pagans and on the other hand, um, you are supposed to be um, giving the death penalty to those who are uh, guilty of false worship. So I, I just wonder if I could get you to talk on that a little bit. If you if that was Klein's critique, do you think it was a good critique or if it was your critique, uh, just talk about it a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um yeah, I mean that that was uh, one of Klein's big points. He was like, you know, th- that's that's going to get in the way, <laughs> guys. If we're if we're killing people that, w- that we're supposed to be evangelizing, uh, you know, that's a problem. Now, it's I think 
you know, as you read Bonson on this, I think it must be said that Bonson is probably a little bit more nuanced than Klein portrays him there. Um, and, you know, Bonson's a clever guy. He's got the whole thing mapped out. He's, you know, he's got all sorts of angles and nuances that if, I think probably if you just read Bonson, you wouldn't jump to Klein's conclusions necessarily. But but the thing about Klein on the other side is that he just, he just, you could see through things, you know, and, and you know, sometimes uh, Klein gets critiqued. He, he didn't give Bonson a fair critique of his own work and didn't sort of catch all these nuances. And that's, that's true on the one hand, but I think Klein, you know, he it was his greatest strength in some ways. He just kind of cut through everything and just wouldn't be rabbit trailed by all the nuance and just said, well, look at the end of the day, this is what you're stuck with. So I think, uh, you know, after, after reading Klein then and, and really processing as deeply as I can what he was saying. I think he's right. I do think I do think it is true that there's going to be this conflict um, of of interest, really. You just can't do what they were doing uh, during the time of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. You know, if you're going to do it consistently, you can't do that now, right? Because they were they were killing the Canaanites, for crying out loud. They were, as part of an eschatological intrusion, to point to the judgment. I mean, that's how it is going to be when Jesus returns. Uh, you know, there's going to be a cleanup of shops, so to speak, and you know, finally, finally, everything is dealt with, and uh, you know, the windows of grace are, are closed at that point. And so you can certainly see how Israel and the judgment, you know, it sort of it echoes the flood events. It, it, you know, it goes against the enemies of God, and it, it foreshadows, um, you know, even. You know Joshua being kind of the same name as Jesus. There, you know, there, there he goes into the promised land and and uh, just just uh, you know executes judgment against God's enemies. I've got no problem in seeing that when 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 Jesus comes again. But like, how on earth do we really do that? And this is where Bonson caught himself up. I think you know he had so many nuances. It, it sort of died the death of a thousand qualifications. You know, because as you you would need to just say all sorts of things to get out of that. But but what Bonson eventually ended up doing, I think that was that gave me most cause to think about it was was that he says, well, you know, we're not saying that you need to just somehow set up this this theocratic zone and then get these rules into place and then just start killing people. What Bonson was saying was, you know, we're we're going to evangelize the way any evangelical is going to evangelize, but we're going to have this eye to politics and uh, as well, and we're going to try and become influencers in that regard, and then. Um, you know, should we hit the point where we're, we're able to, as a majority sort of Christian nation, really affect things at that level and um, start implementing some political change? You know, the kinds of policies we're going to be putting into place uh, are the policies that reflect the Mosaic um, law. And, um, and, and, and so while, and this is where it gets very inconsistent, in my opinion as well, in that they're, they're wanting to hold to an unbroken continuity with the Mosaic Covenant. You know, every law, every word of the law will never pass, but then they're willing to tweak all these laws when it comes down to the, to the actual implementation of them. And, and, you know, it ends up looking more like if anyone just speaks against Christianity openly, you know, that, that's when you're in real trouble. And you can't help but wonder at that point, like, you know, does that mean speaking against theonomy as well? Like, are Christians in trouble when, they, when they're in this Christian nation, according to Bonson, and these politic, uh, these rules are in place, and these laws are in place? Uh, th- what does that mean for the Baptist, for example? <laughs> you know, because I, I, don't, I don't feel like he'll be too, too lenient to, to the Baptist at that point. And, uh, you know, we would, I think, as part of our system to one degree or another, want to see a discontinuity with Israel. 
and uh, you know we're going to speak against the enemy. I think that would I think that according to my best reading of Bonson is that we'd be in trouble. Called, we'd be in um, we'd be in hiding, so to speak, at that at that point. So it's a very grim picture in my view, um, and and that's and that's with all the compromise in place. So I think Klein just saw through all of that. And, and he said, no, this is what you're looking at ultimately. And, and you've got these two fundamentally opposed points. I think another thing that Klein brings out as well, which, which I think that almost no one, I don't ever see this brought up in the discussion, but I think this should be. Uh, he, you know, there's this implicit thing going on with, and this, this applies to neo-Calvinism as well, that you know, we've got to be winning the cultural war. We've got to be, we've got to be creating the Christian nation. That's what triumph looks like, basically. That's, that's what the gospel looks like when it wins. But Klein gets really aggravated at that point when he says, you know, look at church history and look at the way the gospel wins in church history. It, it wins by the blood of the martyrs, you know. It, it, it's, uh, uh, he gets outraged at the thought that the spirit has failed for the last 2,000 years. You know, it, it's just, sure, you have these moments in, in Constantine and whatnot where, where um, you know, we have these moments where we seem to be kind of doing okay politically as Christianity. Uh, but even there, I think, you know, we look back on, on those moments now and that's kind of where the big problems come in, you know, uh, when when politics and, and Christianity are mixed to that degree and, you know, the Crusades and all sorts of things. Um, so I, it doesn't seem now, in retrospect, that's what it looks like when the gospel is winning. Rather, we see now, I think everyone agrees, that that we, even when the gospel looks weak, when the church looks weak, that's when the Spirit is moving powerfully and, and, and winning, so to speak. So we don't want to be undermining that work. You know, It's okay to not win the cultural war. It's okay even to be you know, killed by the culture, so to speak. You know, the, the, the triumph of the gospel uh, reflects the cross in that regard. And um, one of the dangers of... Of of this idea that we need to get away from from the cross and we need to get into glory uh, now uh, is that it undermines that kind of work. So yeah, those are some thoughts that just come to mind in in regard to um, the, that that problem. Yeah, I mean, I'm just for if you're a Baptist, I mean, I guess two part question. Number one, what is the value of Klein? And then if you're a Baptist, what resources in Klein should you start with? Yes. first because i know he's he's got he's written a lot so wh- where do i want to start yeah. if i want to engage him and find the, the greatest value yeah yeah i think baptist uh you know he again he's not a baptist you know so he's gonna he's gonna irritate you know someone that's going in trying to find some weaponry for you know uh baptist argumentation or anything like that but i think you know in general in general i think it's fair to say that baptists have had this it certainly is easier for me to connect Baptist thinking to the two kingdom idea than it is to say, take someone from a really old school Westminster trajectory and, and connect that to the two kingdom thing. So in many ways we have the easier path here. And um, uh, in fact, it's, it's really interesting seeing some of the theonomic literature written against Klein and the Baptist. They kind of, they, they kind of see us uh, as intertwined, interestingly enough. Um, But with with Baptist thought, you know, here we are. We're trying to, you know, we're trying to wrestle with this discontinuity issue. The very question of, of, um, of who is in the kingdom, right? When we're asking who do we baptize, we're asking, you know, what is the kingdom, and and uh, and who, therefore, who should we baptize? You can imagine those early churches, uh, those Baptist churches. They're forced into kind of uh, disestablishment, and there they are meeting together, understanding their little congregational kind of illegal church is is, um, is an expression of Christ's kingdom. And then they're looking at the monarchies of, of England at that time and 
and they're they're very vividly understanding that there's this two kingdom thing going on, you know, and what's going on in the monarchies of England uh, uh, is not exactly what, what we're talking about when we meet together as a church and talk about the new creation kingdom. So uh, I think I think you have that historical overlap. I think that it's not incidental that um, a lot of the Baptists have had to live out that reformed two kingdom expression, whether they liked it or not. It's because they were they were they were wrestling with this issue of of what the kingdom is now, and therefore you know who the subjects of baptism should be. Um, so I think that for that reason, you know we approach the subject in a very similar way to Klein because he was he was wrestling with issues of discontinuity you know he was he was saying how do we account for vivid things that are not the same as they were in the mosaic covenant and yet he shows a, the same kind of uh, concern that that reformed baptists at least show in that we want to see the unity of the story as well we're not we're not happy to just chop it in half and go this is one plan one people and another plan another people we see uh, the unity we want to account for the unity we want to be able to describe it in covenantal terms, we see the covenant theology, but um, but we're not we're not happy just to smooth over those elements of discontinuity. So that's where someone has to go to Klein. I think that's where a Baptist will be helped uh, as they go to Klein. Uh, they'll they'll really find in him amazingly robust um, arguments for for why we shouldn't just redo Israel. You know, now as Baptists, we're going to read that isn't we shouldn't redo it. Israel administratively in the administration of the covenant sign as well, you know, um, but but it's bigger than that, you know, is is what I'm saying. And and Klein really touches on on why it's true that we shouldn't redo uh, Israel. Um, it's it's interesting because Garrett uh, Duane Garrett wrote a a critique of, of Klein's um, revision of the covenant sign. Uh, Klein wasn't happy with the way it was it was being dealt with in the reformed camp and so he he kind of did a whole full-scale revision of the whole thing and and, and um, it's really interesting to read um, I can't help but see a disjuncture I mean Klein wasn't a Baptist but I don't I don't you know the way he dealt with the baptism issue it was it was almost not connected to his main system and and Garrett brings that out he he, he sort of uh, critiques Klein and as Bill said it was a scathing critique but the core of his system is left intact it's it's unscathed by um by garrett's critique and it's that core that is really so helpful for baptists i think um and, and you know that kleinians won't like me uh, saying this but i think that this is this is one of uh, the things i see in him i see a bit of a tension in his own theology uh, on the issue of baptism a little bit like owen like john owen you know you often hear these similar sort of conversations around owen you know there he was obviously he wasn't a baptist but but there's so much in him that supports Baptistic thinking. So, so I think there is um, uh, a reason to go to Klein for that reason as well. And and um, in terms of the actual conceptual resources um, and where to start, uh, as I was saying, one of the things, although it's not intrinsic to Baptist thought, uh, one of the things I, could, I think he could be so helpful in is developing this idea of protological eschatology in Baptist thought. Um, eschatology in general, I think, um, is very very in sync with what we're typically saying if we're amillennial uh, and that sort of thing. But And I feel, again, that kind of works with Baptist thinking, Reformed Baptist thinking. We come out of premillennial stuff usually, and we, we're not willing to go all the way with postmillennial usually. Sometimes it happens. But, um, but you know, that kind of leaves us in that amillennial space, and, and Klein is, is, is helpful all around in that regard. But it's that protological side that almost no one talks about. And it's yet it is a, a rich 
uh, concept in Voss's biblical theology that that is yet to be explored. And, and so Klein really just develops that. And I think in developing it, he will reinforce a lot of what Baptists are saying anyway. Um, uh, same thing with eschatological intrusion and that sort of thing. Um, common grace, of course, is just this. I think everyone can benefit from Klein and just seeing his argument on common grace. Um, the, you know, again, the, coming back to that Kuiper thing, it's really just advancing Kuiper's common grace idea. It's just it's getting down to the the core. Uh, he's, you know, in the process, really, he will help a church to keep focused on its mission in the gospel and keep uh, and avoid missional creep, as as Horton puts it. But I think that means you you probably want to start with his magnum opus. You know, I would just start with with King and Prologue. He uses so many uh, double barreled, triple triple barreled words sometimes, and and it's difficult. It's a difficult read to get started. And everyone gets tripped up on the framework interpretation in Genesis one, and usually they don't like that. You know, so they stop reading Klein. And, and but that's just Genesis chapter one. There's a whole there's a whole book to go still. And the, you know, my advice would just be to keep reading, get through the triple barreled words, all the neologisms, you know, just, just get through all of that and just see what he's saying. Because there is, um, there is a, a world there that can um, reinforce a lot of what's being said by Baptists anyway. Republication is, is a good example of that. Um, you know, although Baptists historically haven't said exactly what Klein says there, uh, you know, Klein just, just uh, offers some amazing conceptual resources. So you could start with King and Prologue. Structural biblical authority is, is, is probably his... If you want to think how Klein thinks, probably that's a, that's the best place to start. But I always usually just send people straight for the kill in um, Kingdom Prologue. He did write his one of his well, his last book was called God Heaven and Armageddon, uh, Har Megiddon, like playing on the mountain idea in Hebrew there. And um, he uh, it, he tried to distill Kingdom Prologue and make it more accessible. I don't think he really succeeded. It ended up just being a very another another very complicated book. But but uh, it is shorter and uh, for what. What, and it covers a little bit more ground. So there's the option of starting with God, Heaven, and Armageddon. You might be put off by the title as thinking it's some really crazy, you know, sort of obscure thing. But it's actually just a, it's just a biblical theology. It's just a let's develop the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation. And so you know, I, I always recommend that one. It's it's hard going, but but try and keep with it. Well, that's awesome. I mean, this has been super helpful to getting into Klein. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more we could discuss. Um, there's a lot more left unturned and hopefully you know if you publish your dissertation or something in the future um, we all can get our hands on that and engage it all because uh, I know me and Brandon have enjoyed working through it and talking with you about this so first thanks Michael for talking with us this is a lot of fun second I want to pump your podcast again those who are listening and have enjoyed this go listen subscribe to the 2H Sojourner podcast you can get there his content every week um, and enjoy it and be able to engage with it and then obviously uh, you've got work that you're working on too that's going to be coming out. So follow follow their work. I think they're doing awesome stuff. And for everybody who's been listening, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.